Christopher Setterland. I'm coming to you from the popular vacation destination, Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And this is the In My Footsteps podcast. Welcome to episode four. This is the last episode before the Christmas holiday. So I was wondering how everyone's shopping's gone out there. With the world as it is with COVID kind of hampering the normal shopping and festivities of Christmas, How much of your shopping has been done online? I'll say over the years, I've been drifting more towards online shopping just because it's easier, but now it seems like it's kind of more of a necessity. So is it 50-50 for you out there as far as online shopping goes? I mean, it's not just Amazon that you can go to with the clicks and make it so easy. There's so many stores that now have the online presence. I mean, even I have an online presence. You can go to my website, ChristopherSetterland.com, and you can get connected with all five of my books on there through the publishers, through Schiffer and History Press. And you can even go to my Zazzle store. Have you done anything like that? Etsy, Zazzle, Shopify. I did that a couple years ago. I created a storefront You know, I'll add things to it. I keep trying and telling myself that I need to add more things to it. Just taking my photography and making mugs or postcards. I've even got a a tote bag for beaches on there. But my Zazzle store is Cape Cod Living. You can even go there and check it out. I've got, I have a keychain and a bumper sticker for this podcast, which I'm the only one that owns right now. But hey, you never know. I wanted to give a shout out. To my nephew Landon, who is going to turn 13 years old tomorrow, according to when this podcast goes live. So I'm hoping you have a great birthday and then a great Christmas back to back. I wonder about that, what it's like to have a birthday so close to Christmas. My nephew Landon does, and then my uncle Bob, he does right after. I've always wondered about that. Mine is in November, so it's close enough, but they're far enough apart that you can get a celebration of each and not feel like you get the birth Christmas combination where it's one present for both. Before we get on to what's coming up in this episode, I just wanted to extend a sincere thank you to everyone who has listened to, downloaded, or shared the first three episodes of this podcast. It's one of those things where it's a passion project. I really enjoy what I share Cape Cod, New England history and travel and the nostalgia part, which I really enjoy reliving the glory days, quote unquote, of the 80s and 90s. And it's exciting when I can go to the links and see that this podcast is available through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and it actually was finally approved through Pandora last week. So now it's really available wherever anyone gets their podcasts. 
I'd love to hear from people that have listened to the first three episodes, or at least one of them, just to know which topics you like the best. It kind of helps steer me in the right direction. I know what I think will be interesting for listeners to hear, but there may be things I'm totally missing as far as my research goes. The first three episodes, I had Deacon John Doan, which was my ninth great-grandfather and my connection to the Cape as far as being a 12th generation Cape Codder. I had Cape Cod's Atlantis, Billingsgate Island, which has fascinated me since college. Thompson's Clam Bar, the most well-known restaurant maybe in the Cape's history. Those are just for the history parts. I mean, the retro stuff is great if you are my age or close to my age. I think a lot of that stuff you kind of relate to. And if you're younger, it's like reading a history textbook where you can't believe some of the things that used to exist. But you can always shoot me an email at ChristopherSetterland at gmail.com with any questions, comments, suggestions. Coming up for 2021, I've got a couple new segments all ready to go, which are going to be fun and kind of branch out this podcast. But enough about the past. Today in episode four, we're going to find some great deals at Bradley's Department Stores. We're going to grab a slice at Mystic Pizza and check out the rest of the town. We'll discover some killer retro clothing, some of the brands I think you're going to remember. And we got some more This Week in History. So this is it, In My Footsteps podcast episode four, and let's take a walk. That music means it's time again for This Week in History. For those of you that may not be familiar with this, it is where I take four topics that occurred this week in history. One local, one national, one on the world stage, and one that's more fun pop culture. And just give a little overview of what was going on in the world at different years this week in history. This week in history, 400 years ago, on December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower docked at Plymouth Harbor. The Pilgrims, when they left England on September 6th of that year, their intention was to land in what is present-day Northern Virginia. Of course, they didn't end up reaching there. There were 102 passengers on the Mayflower when it left Plymouth, England to cross the Atlantic. Ironically, the Mayflower was set to be joined by another ship on its journey across named the Speedwell, and the Speedwell kept having trouble where it was leaking. When they would start sailing, the ship would leak. They'd have to return, drain the ship. Eventually, when it got to September 6th, the Mayflower left on its own and left the Speedwell behind. The ship was at sea for 66 days and ended up landing in Provincetown on November the 11th. And it landed, there's a park there, first landing park at the end of Commercial Street. In Provincetown, there's a little rotary you can park at and see that where they landed. The group spent five weeks on Cape Cod exploring, and there are a lot of places that you can see on the Cape that are named after the Pilgrims or are places that they visited. On Pilgrim Heights Road in Truro, there's the Pilgrim Spring Trail, which is where they purportedly had their first drink of fresh water in the New World. On Pond Road in Truro, there's Pilgrim Pond. 
story is that a group of 16 pilgrims led by Miles Standish and William Bradford spent their second night on the shores of Cape Cod camping by this pond. Cornhill Beach on Cornhill Road in Truro, it's near here that these same pilgrims that stayed at the pond came upon a Wampanoag tribe's stash of fresh water and corn, which they stole to sustain their people. This led down into East Ham at First Encounter Beach on Samoset Road. It's called First Encounter because this was the first encounter between the Nosset tribe of Native Americans and the Pilgrims on December 8th. There was a skirmish because the natives remembered other Europeans which had landed and they were pretty hostile towards the natives, so there was a little bit of a battle. Nobody was killed, which was good. But in the end, the pilgrims decided to leave Cape Cod and find somewhere else that was more hospitable. Within days of the encounter, they left for Plymouth, which is where they docked on December 16th. And Cape Cod wouldn't see a permanent settlement until 1637 when the town of Sandwich was formed. This week in history, 209 years ago, on December 16th, 1811, the town of New Madrid, Missouri, was rocked by what is purported to be the largest earthquakes in the history of America. December 16th started a string of earthquakes. Between December 16th and the end of March in 1812, there were six to 10,000 earthquakes in the area of Missouri where New Madrid is located, which is near the junction of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. These earthquakes are seem to be the longest, where there was one and then a series of aftershocks, which lasted for months. The first one, though, December 16th, 1811, was a magnitude 8.1 on the Richter scale. For comparison, the earthquake that struck Southern California in 1989 that affected the World Series that October, that was a 6.9 on the Richter scale. These ones that started in New Madrid, Missouri, started as an 8.1. Ironically, that wasn't even the most devastating of all the earthquakes. The third really major one occurred on February 7th, 1812, and that's purported to be as high as an 8.8 magnitude. It was after that earthquake on February 7th that Legend has it that the Mississippi River actually ran backwards for several hours because of all of the the damage. Legend has it that these earthquakes, especially the one in February, was felt as far away as New York City and actually rang the church bells in Boston, which is incredible. I can only relate it to last month on November 8th there was an earthquake just off of the coast of Cape Cod more off the coast of Dartmouth and New Bedford that was a 3.6 magnitude and people felt it all over Cape Cod but I couldn't imagine something more than double that let alone quakes that just kept going aftershocks for months and months and didn't dissipate that actually got worse at some points this week in history 117 years ago, on December 17, 1903, the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur, succeeded with their first flight from atop Big Kill Devil Hill on the Outer Banks, North Carolina. The Wright brothers were actually from Dayton, Ohio, 
and had been experimenting with flight since 1899. They moved to the Outer Banks because it seemed to be a perfect area to conduct these sorts of experiments. On December 14th, they made their first attempt. This was made by Wilbur via a coin toss. Their plane, called the Wright Flyer, left a launching rail and climbed too steeply and just dove into the sand, so they had to wait for it to be repaired. The repairs took place, and on December 17th, the first flight had 27 mile per hour winds, and it was flown by Orville, and they went for 12 seconds and 120 feet. The Wright brothers made four total flights that day, each one going further than the one before. All of these flights and the records, they're commemorated at the Wright Brothers National Memorial. It's in Kill Devil Hills, next door to Kitty Hawk. So that's actually where the flights took place, Kill Devil Hills. Obviously, that's the name of the hill they launched from. I went last year and visited this site, and it's incredible. It's really neat if you're into history like me to get to go and actually be where history took place. They have monuments where each of the four flights landed. They tell you when it took place, how far it is away. And on top of Big Kill Devil Hill, there's actually a really big monument to the brothers. So it kind of gives you a perspective of how far these flights took place. There's replicas of the camp that the brothers and their team had set up. It's the hangar and living quarters. It's neat to see that. And they've got the living quarters actually have things inside chairs and beds that make it look like it's 1903. But that was 117 years ago this week that humans first had the miracle of flight, thanks to Orville and Wilbur Wright. And lastly, 88 years ago this week, on December 18th, 1932, the Chicago Bears defeated the Portsmouth Spartans 9-0 in the first ever NFL championship game. The NFL was founded years earlier in 1920, but the thing was that the champion was always whoever had the best record at the end of the season. There was never a need for a championship game. What happened was that the Bears and the Spartans ended up tied for first, which necessitated the championship game as the tiebreaker. The teams played in Wrigley Field. 25,000 fans attended this game. The big highlight was the touchdown forward pass from quarterback Bronco Nagurski to halfback Red Grange. The Spartans team actually moved to Detroit in 1934 and became the Lions. For the Bears, it was the first of nine total NFL championships, including one Super Bowl. The Portsmouth Spartans, after they moved to Detroit, won four NFL championships, although the last of those was in 1957, and the Lions have not made it to a Super Bowl or since then. So that wraps up this week in history. Which one did you like the best there? I went, I visited the Wright Brothers Memorial, so I have a soft spot for that. And the Mayflower Landing in Plymouth is obviously huge with this, the 400th anniversary. And I've been to all those places. They're easy to get to. But we'll see you again next time for more This Week in History. So before we go on, I just wanted to take a minute to give a thank you 
to our sponsor for this week, Cove Road Real Estate in Orleans. I'm a Cape Codder through and through, born and raised here. I love it. I created this podcast partially to be able to share things about my home and New England and history and travel and nostalgia and all of that stuff with all of you. It's also been started as a distraction from the terrible year that was 2020 with the COVID-19 pandemic. One actual unexpected silver lining of this pandemic was the real estate market became flooded with an unprecedented bump in properties. It's actually a fabulous time to sell if you're thinking about it. The values of the homes have risen substantially due to everybody wanting to be on the Cape now. That's the irony is that you can work from home so you can kind of choose wherever you want to live if that's possible. I know not everyone can, but if you can, you can you can live on the Cape. Inventory is low and there are a lot of buyers looking around. If you're thinking about selling your home, buying a home, you should contact Samantha Chin Reynolds from Cove Road Real Estate. Her passion is helping people find a home on the Cape and it's one of the reasons she got into real estate in the first place. She's a third-generation realtor on the Cape and grew up loving real estate and Cape Cod, so it's a perfect match. Cove Road Real Estate is located in Orleans, but they do more work than just in that single town. So to contact Sam, her email is samanthachin888 at gmail.com, or you can give her a call at 774-994-1501. Samantha is flanked in her duties as real estate agent by her business partner, Jeff Cusack, who has been doing real estate in the area for over 20 years. These are people that know what they're doing, know how to get the best value for your home, and know how to give you the best value when you're buying a home. So contact Sam, contact Jeff, coveroadrealestate.com. Cove Road Real Estate, if you're looking to buy a home, sell a home, come down to the Cape. You can't go wrong with Cove Road Real Estate. So this is the part of the podcast each week where we go over some sort of historical story we call it I call it in their footsteps and if you've been listening to this podcast at all you know that as a child of the 80s and a teenager of the 90s I'm a big fan of nostalgia and retro I'm not quite the old man yells at cloud like grandpa simpson on the simpsons yet where I say you know my generation was the greatest ever but I do find myself drifting towards 80s and 90s pop culture and things like that and really enjoying it. And that's where the back in the day segment comes from also. So this week it's going to kind of intersect. I remember as a kid growing up in the eighties, the fun going, usually on Sundays, going out shopping with my grandparents, either my, either of my grandmothers, it was usually them that would take me and my oldest sister, Kate, we would usually be the ones that were old enough to go off on our own. It usually consisted of getting some sort of toy somewhere. We'd either go to, so we didn't have Toys R Us on Cape Cod back then. We had tons of toys or KB toys at the Cape Cod Mall. And we would usually have lunch at Friendly's. That was my favorite. Chicken licking plate, which was chicken tenders and fries. Yeah, that dates me right there. So one of the places that we would go every now and then to go shopping was Bradley's. And I'm sure anyone who 
is my age or around my age or older remembers Bradley's if you grew up in the Northeast. Essentially, Bradley's was, it wasn't like Job Lot. It was, it was like Kmart, but it was, I don't want to say higher quality. I guess maybe when I was a kid, I thought it was higher quality. It was neck and neck on Cape Cod and in the Northeast with places like Woolworth, Jordan Marsh, Sears, and like I said, Kmart. And also in the Northeast, there were similar stores like Caldor and Ames. But rather than wax nostalgic about what it was like for me to go visit Bradley's, I wanted to give a little bit of its history to give you an idea of why it was so beloved and is still remembered today, almost 20 years after it went out of business. The origins of the Bradley's department store started at a place called Windsor Locks, Connecticut. And this was when three Connecticut businessmen, Morris Leff, Edward Cuzon, and Isidore Burson, met at Bradley International Airport to discuss the next step in the evolution of discount stores, like the old 5 and 10s. Anyone that grew up on the Cape might remember Robinson's 5 and 10 in South Yarmouth. These guys wanted to kind of evolve the business. Due to the location of where they had the meeting, they decided to call the store Bradley's. So there's no real big, deep meaning behind it. It's just the name of the airport where they happen to be meeting. The first Bradley's department store opened its doors on March 14th, 1958, and it was in New London, Connecticut, which is in eastern Connecticut, about 50 miles southwest of Hartford. It was labeled as a modern self-service department store. And so when it first opened, it had to distance itself from other department stores. So basically, it's, you know, advertised first quality good and nationally advertised merchandise. And they would have snack bars at these first ones. It was a success. And so within a few years, subsequent Bradleys opened up in Connecticut in Milford, Derby, Hamden, and Bristol, and also in West Springfield, Massachusetts. The initial success of Bradley's caught the eye of another up-and-coming business, and that was the Stop and Shop grocery store. In May 1961, Stop and Shop bought Bradley's from Lef Cuzon and Burson, the three men that established it. From there on out, Bradley's and Stop and Shop would kind of be linked. They would usually even be in the same strip mall, if possible. For those that grew up on Cape Cod, the first Bradley's that opened on the Cape was in 1965 in Dennisport, and that was actually the 31st Bradley's store in the chain. Today, that location is uh, Ocean State Job Lot. It's where Upper County Road and Route 28 meet in Dennisport. Ironically, my sister Kate that I mentioned earlier when we used to go out shopping with our grandparents, she ended up working at that one. I don't know if it was up until it closed or not, but I remember picking her up from that location when Bradley's was in his dying days. By 1968, there were 52 Bradley's stores in the Northeast, and they generated an annual revenue of $139 million at the time, which adjusted for inflation, is about a billion dollars in 2020. So they were really successful. They opened up several more stores on the Cape. Um, in the early 70s, Bradley's grew. They opened stores in New Jersey, 
and it was in that time during the 70s that the commercials that were on TV introduced people to a character named Mrs. B. She was basically the mascot of Bradley's. She was the smart shopper in the Bradley's ads, played by actress Cynthia Harris. The ad campaign worked. Uh, By the end of the 70s, Bradley's sales had reached $634 million annually, which is about $2.2 billion, adjusted for inflation. In 1982, Bradley's stores made up 78% of the Stop and Shop Corporation's total profits, which is crazy to think about how big, well, I guess how big Stop and Shop is now. But even in the 80s, they were big. But to think that their profits were mostly hinged on Bradley's, thinking about where Bradley's ended up, times were about to change for them. As Bradley's was still growing and kind of in its heyday in the mid-1980s, this was when Walmart started to take hold. And Kmart had been there for a while, but it began to take a bite out of the, the discount retail pie. But even in the mid-80s, Bradley's opened stores in Virginia, Maryland, and North Carolina, peaking at nearly 170 stores in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. The trouble came when opening all these new stores, coupled with the impact that Walmart, Kmart, and Target made, started to shrink the Bradley's profit. The downfall of Bradley's actually started when Stop and Shop became a privately held company in 1988. They acquired massive debt as it arranged a buyout among the shareholders. And this debt forced Bradley's to step back from the expansion they were doing. They had to sell off the leases to 37 stores they had opened down in the mid-Atlantic. In the early 90s, they got rid of the Mrs. B character on TV. They started streamlining. The profits began to slowly rebound. And in 1992, Bradley's broke away from Stop and Shop and became its own company for the first time in 31 years. They even got on the New York Stock Exchange. The new freedom that Bradley's got, though, ended up becoming their downfall, which is ironic that Stop and Shop was kind of helping them, you know, one hand washes the other. So Walmart and Target surpassed them by the mid-90s as far as the retail stores. Bradley's filed for bankruptcy. More stores closed in 96. Some of them got converted into Ames department stores I mentioned earlier. And they emerged from bankruptcy with 105 stores. Things actually looked up in 1999 when Caldor, another competing department store, closed down. So Bradley's had kind of a brief resurgence. But a second bout of bankruptcy in 2000 proved to be that was the end. All the all the stores began to close, and by the end of 2001, Bradley's was but a memory. It's wild to think that it's been almost 20 years since Bradley's closed. It was such a big part of my childhood. I don't know about any of you. I would say if you're in your mid-30s and older, Bradley's probably held kind of a bigger uh, place in your childhood. If you're younger than that, then you, they, it just falls into a category of businesses that failed, but Bradley's was a big deal. I have plenty of memories of going to Bradley's when I was a kid. If you're interested in kind of reliving those days, I'm a big fan of doing that. If you go on YouTube, you can find commercials, old commercials 
of Bradley's back in the 70s and 80s, and you can see Mrs. B and see if you remember her. I vaguely do. My memories of life basically start in about 1980. So, But even then, I was three years old then. That's the story of Bradley's. Uh, it's rise and it's fall. Anyone out there remember going to Bradley's? Did you have those kind of trips, either with parents or grandparents, back in the day where you'd go kind of Sunday shopping, get some lunch? That was always fun. I miss those days. Next episode, we will go back in their footsteps again. If you got any suggestions, anything you want to hear as far as New England history goes, it doesn't have to be some huge event like the Boston Massacre. It can be fun stuff like Bradley's. I enjoy these just as much. Shoot me a message, Christopher Sutherland at gmail.com. Or you can visit my website, ChristopherSetterland.com, and send me a message through there. Questions, comments, they're always good. I'll see you next time for more of In Their Footsteps. Road trip time again. This is the part of the podcast where we take a little trip to a popular spot in New England and find out a little bit about it, why you should go there, and what's so great about it. This time we're going to the town of Mystic, Connecticut, located about 55 miles southeast of the capital of Hartford. And Mystic is a great spot to go. It's made up of two towns, actually. So it's made up of the towns of Groton and Stonington. Groton and Stonington are separated by the Mystic River, and the town itself was first settled in 1654. It's a small town. As of 2018, the population was just over 4,200 people. It's kind of centrally located in New England, as in it's three hours from New York City and two hours from Boston. So it makes it really easy to get there. If you're looking to go to Mystic, there are two places that probably will jump out to you as far as where to go. The first one and most popular attraction is the Mystic Seaport, which is located at 75 Greenmanville Avenue. Mystic Seaport is located right on the Mystic River. It's a 19-acre shipyard, basically museum, founded in 1929. It's seen as the leading maritime museum in the United States, with more than 500 historic watercraft located there. You can visit their website at mysticseaport.org and kind of get a better idea with pictures. It's fun to go and just walk around. Don't go with a plan. We need to see this, this, and this. You kind of just want to go and let things flow. That's kind of how you discover the neat things that are there. The thing that I really enjoy about the Mystic Seaport connects to my love of lighthouses. So there's a replica lighthouse. It's just known as the Mystic Seaport Lighthouse. Essentially, it's not a working lighthouse. It was built in 1966, and it's an exact replica of Brant Point Lighthouse on the island of Nantucket. And interestingly, there's also another replica in Hyannis' Inner Harbor, on the Cape. And I found that neat to have photos of all three of these lighthouses that look exactly alike. They're little wooden lighthouses. They're 
15 to 20 feet tall, little diminutive lighthouses. However, that's just me. Obviously, there's more to see there than just a lighthouse that doesn't actually work. There's also restaurants you can eat at, like the Galley and Latitude 41. And you can grab a drink at Schaefer's Spouter Tavern. But if you're going to Mystic, Connecticut, and you're looking to eat, there's one place that you have to go. And that's the other spot that comes up when you think of Mystic. And that's Mystic Pizza. It became famous through a 1988 movie that starred Julia Roberts, but the pizza place located at 56 West Main Street was actually opened in 1973. There are two locations of Mystic Pizza. The other one is in North Stonington, Connecticut. But if you want to go and get the true experience, you've got to go to the one in Mystic. Mystic Pizza was opened by the Zaleppos family, and they have the tagline, A Little Slice of Heaven to describe their food. I have been there, and it is excellent. I have my own souvenir cup, which is one of those touristy things that, of course, I had to do when visiting. Screenwriter Amy Jones was summering in the area around Mystic and found the pizzeria a perfect spot as the backdrop to her story about the lives of three young waitresses, and that kind of led to Mystic Pizza, the movie being filmed in the area, and immediately the pizza place was a huge hit with cars pulling up and stopping in the middle of the road to get pictures of the sign and the interior of the building. That traffic kind of led to the opening of the second Mystic Pizza. But for the fans of the movie who couldn't make it to Connecticut, they had another plan in mind, and that was to create a frozen pizza that could be bought in in stores. So all of the New England states sell the Mystic Frozen Pizza, including places like Whole Foods and Market Basket. So if you're looking to get a slice of heaven and you can't make it to Connecticut, you can go to these stores or you can go to mysticpizzaoriginal.com and check it out there. The other big attraction in Mystic is the Mystic Aquarium, which is Connecticut's premier aquarium. It's located at 55 Coogan Boulevard or at mysticaquarium.org. The aquarium is an excellent place uh, to bring kids, especially to see all the marine life. It's also great to learn about the conservation and protection of the aquatic animals. And it's led by highly qualified individuals that truly care about the preservation of marine life. They've got indoor and outdoor exhibits. New England's only beluga whales, the endangered African penguin, and rescued seals and fish, and so much more. It's definitely worth checking out. Mystic Connecticut in general, although I only mentioned three huge attractions, there's so much more to see. Being on the Mystic River, it's an easy, you know, you go and you check out the scenery in Groton and Stonington. There's a lot to see in those areas in general as well, but I'll save those for another trip. Definitely, if you're anywhere in New England, from New York to Boston, all the way up into Maine, take the time, if you can, to go check out Mystic Connecticut. Year-round, you can go to the aquarium and Mystic Seaport. It's a little different when it's wintertime, but obviously it's worth it. Check out mysticchamber.org to get more information about the town of Mystic and everything that you can see and do there. So have any of you been to Mystic? What did you think of it there? Did you go to Mystic Pizza? 
Are there any places there that I missed out on? Because I can always go back there myself, too. But I will see you again next time for more road trip all around New England. When you're growing up, uh, when you're a kid growing up, there's always a big sense of wanting to fit in, wanting to be cool, do what the kids that are seen as popular do. And I remember as a child of the 1980s, a teenager of the 1990s, that was always big, whether it was music. When I was in middle school, the cool music was Red Hot Chili Peppers and the Beastie Boys. You want to listen to what the cool kids listen to, watch what they watch, and wear what they wear. So for this segment of Back in the Day on the In My Footsteps podcast, I wanted to dive into some of the old school clothing brands that I remember wearing or wanting to wear or knowing, ooh, if I wear that stuff, I'm going to be cool just like everyone else. Now, granted, all of you out there that are in their 20s or under 20s, these brands, if you go and look them up, you're going to probably say, ugh, what, this was cool back then? But yeah, trends change, fads change. So these clothing brands were the in thing. So let's go back in the day for some old school clothing brands. When we're talking about these brands, specifically from the 1980s into the early 90s, these are the brands that I remember. First, I know that I had Ocean Pacific clothing. It was a surfer brand. They were established in 1972. They kind of go alongside other surfer brand clothing lines like Quicksilver and Billabong. I remember having Quicksilver too, specifically the t-shirts. It's almost like you wanted a shirt or shorts or something that had the logo so that people could see it and be, oh yeah, he's he's got the Ocean Pacific. Ocean Pacific had the OP logo that was very... Not tacky, but the 80s look. You, ha- you have to see it to understand. The clothing line is still made today, by the way. I, I remember the t-shirts. They A lot of them had horizontal colored stripes with palm trees on them. Specifically, I remember having a pair of what they call board shorts. Big, huge-legged board shorts that were bluish, yellowish. Those were the ones, especially in summer, wearing those. It was, oh, look, he's got the OP shorts. Another brand that I remember being really popular, especially in middle school, was Varney. The company started as a sunglasses company. They're a French company. started in 1960. So they really were just about making sunglasses until they were a sponsor of the 1984 Olympics. And after that, they became a global brand. Their logo, if you're trying to, if you're my age, trying to remember what the logo looks like, it was a blue circle with a red V. And they had a lot of the shirts. The one that I remember was just the white shirt with the the logo, the blue circle and the red V. You can still get the shirts today, too, on their website, the Varney US site. And they have sweatshirts. Some of the logos have more of those surfer colors, kind of the pastel blue and orange. But yeah, that one's still going strong today. 
One that I remember specifically for the t-shirts was the No Fear Company. So No Fear, they were established in 1989. They also had some energy drinks. I remember the t-shirts having kind of motivational, kind of inspirational slogans on them. They were more like tough love slogans. I remember specifically my friend Barry had a t-shirt. This was in high school. And the slogan on the back said, second place is the first loser, which is a great sentiment, but it's also just like, all right, if you don't win, everyone else sucks. And that's, so it's one of those, it's, it's tough love, but it was, I guess, motivational. There was another one that said, I don't come here to play. I come here to win. Those, if you wore those in school, it was definitely kind of that cool rebelling against the norm kind of shirt. This clothing line could be seen as kind of the extreme sports example of clothing, not really skater stuff. I always assume that like kind of the rebelling was seen as skater clothing back in my day, but they're still going strong too. Well, sort of. So they went bankrupt in 2011 and the company was bought by a British sports retailer, the Fraser's Group. So they're actually still available. You can buy No Fear Clothing still. Does anyone out there remember L.A. Gear? L.A. Gear started in 1983, and interestingly for this podcast, the guy who founded it, Robert Greenberg, was from Boston, and he moved to L.A. and started the L.A. Gear Company, and they got really big when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the center for the L.A. Lakers, left his Adidas contract to go and endorse L.A. Gear. There was a lot of other big celebrity endorsers. I mean, you had Michael Jackson and Paula Abdul. In sports, you had Wayne Gretzky. The sneakers for LA Gear were the most well-known. They had their high tops. They called the regulators. They were like the Reebok pump, which another one. If you're if you're not familiar with the Reebok pump or the regulator, essentially it had a little air pump in it that would kind of tighten the shoes up around your feet. Those were a huge fad in the early 90s. Now, not so much. They also had LA Lights, which were shoes that had light-up heels, and they actually became uh, important. They were like a safety thing. If kids were lost in the woods or something, their light-up shoes, people could actually come and find them. So they became more than just a status symbol of wearing these types of sneakers. And like the others that I mentioned before, LA Gear is still available. They have a website you can go and get some new and retro clothing and accessories. The one that I remember specifically thinking of it as a skater brand was Airwalks, and they're still around too, but the Airwalks came out in the 1980s. They were a casual sneaker, and I remember having, those were, for me, along with Vans, those were the brands where it wasn't a sneaker, it wasn't a dress shoe, it was a casual, and they were not bland, but Think of it as like Skechers today, where they just look like a casual shoe. It's hard to describe, but Airwalks are still around. I had a pair of those in high school and thought I was pretty cool having those. And I actually got another pair. This was less than 10 years ago. I said I wanted to go retro even then when I was in my 30s. I said, I got to get me some Airwalks. All I need now is a flannel shirt and some torn jeans, and I'd be right back to my grunge roots of the 90s. I wanted to include one more, so it's not really a brand, it's more of a trend, 
especially in the early 90s. So there was a company called Genera, and they had something called Hypercolor shirts. So if you're not familiar with this, Hypercolor was basically, it would be one color, kind of a powdery looking color, whether it's red or blue or whatever. And when it got warm, if you put your warm hand on the shirt, it would leave a handprint that was a different color. So basically, heat would change the color of the shirt. And those things were, they were, they were popular for a short time, but they were very popular when they were popular. You can still get hypercolor shirts. I mean, granted, more than just, you know, going on a website and buying it like eBay and getting someone's old shirt. But Genero was sold in the mid-90s. Did any of you out there that are my age, you know, 40s, did you have any of those clothing brands? Did you wear any? Did you keep any of those? If you go in your closet, do you have a No Fear shirt from 25 years ago? I was curious. I was looking up sayings that used to be on the shirts to for research for this segment, and they actually have No Fear shirts for sale, used ones on eBay. They're going for $50, $60. So, I mean, I, I don't know if that's if they've aged well, if they're collector's items. I just found it interesting that people are selling their No Fear shirts from the 90s for $60, $70. I don't know. Would you would you buy an old t-shirt from the 90s or 80s? Maybe not to wear, but to have, like someone else's shirt? I'm not sure about that. There's a little trip back in the day. Some old school clothing brands. Let me know if you had any of those brands, shirts, shorts, shoes. If there are any that I missed out, shoot me an email and let me know. So that's going to do it for episode four of the In My Footsteps podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this episode. And any of you that have listened to the preceding ones, I really appreciate it as I continue honing my craft as a podcast host. I went a little bit longer than I had intended. I kept saying that these podcasts, usually I want them to be a manageable bite size so that you can listen to them in one sitting. But I've also, in my research of how to do a podcast, learned that you don't cut things short if it's going well, and you don't pad it to make it longer than it has to be. If you're trying to meet a certain time requirement, you're going to kind of end up disappointed one way or another. You can find me on Instagram. I have a page, the In My Footsteps podcast page, which showcases the podcast and things that have to do with it. I have another personal page that's more my photography, as I am an amateur photographer. Find me on Twitter at Chris Setterlin. That's my handle over there. I'm also on YouTube Christopher Setterlin, you can see my stupid face from when I was on Chronicle last year. I made sure that that was the photo. It has the little Channel 5 logo in the corner, so I feel like a big shot. My Facebook author page is Christopher Setterlin In My Footsteps. It has the podcast logo that was created by Amy Keller Jump. That is my photo for that page, too. Easy to find. As I said earlier... If you haven't finished your Christmas shopping and you're interested, you can check out my Zazzle store. That's Cape Cod Living. And also my website, ChristopherSetterland.com, that was designed by one of my oldest friends, Barry Menard, a great graphic designer. It's got links to all of my five books on there. 
and my In My Footsteps lifestyle and travel blog, which I'm constantly trying to post uploads to. I think the last post that I put was about this place called Pops Pie Plant that used to exist in Dennisport, Massachusetts. But I'm also doing New England history a lot more now, which is fun. Tune in next time for episode five. It's going to actually fall on New Year's Eve. So that's going to be a fun one. We'll have some stuff related to New Year's Eve. The retro section will feature Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve. Anyone who is my age will definitely remember what it was like to have him hosting New Year's Eve. We're going to take a trip to Chatham, Massachusetts, which has usually a great first night activities there. This year, probably not quite as good. For the In Their Footsteps section, I did a little poll on Twitter and Instagram where I had two choices as far as what people wanted to hear about. The winning choice was Mayo Beach Lighthouse in Wellfleet. Without giving too much away, essentially the lighthouse was lost for several decades and discovered somewhere else. We'll just leave it at that. We'll do another This Week in History, which will include some fun stuff like the debut of the Howdy Doody show on TV. And I'll have a new sponsor next week. I wanted to give a shout out to my sponsor for this week, Samantha Chin Reynolds and Cove Road Real Estate. And until next time, I wanted to wish everyone a happy holiday season. Merry Christmas coming up. Again, happy birthday to my nephew Landon on the 18th of December. Happy birthday to my Uncle Bob on the 30th. I'll probably wish you it again when we do the next episode. And thank you to everyone out there for taking a walk in my footsteps. But remember, in life, don't follow my footsteps. Don't follow anyone's footsteps. Create your own path. Enjoy every moment you can on this journey we call life. Take care, and I'll talk to you again soon.